good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, I hope it's all good. My name is Chase Collum, Special Projects Editor with PEI Media in New York. Today I'm joined by Private Debt Investor Senior Editor and 16-year London-based PEI veteran Andy Thompson and Kyle Campbell, a New York-based senior reporter for Perry, for today's episode of the Spotlight Podcast in which we will be focusing on distressed debt. Andy, a lot of money has been raised for large global distressed funds. Can you give me a sense of the scale of it all and then tell me, you know, if it can all be sensibly deployed? Maybe you could talk about distressed debt more broadly. And then, Kyle, you could sort of answer that from a real estate perspective. Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot has been raised. The first point maybe to make about distressed investing is it spans pretty much all of our asset classes. Uh, looking at it just in a private debt context, I mean, the peak years were 2017 and, and 2019. I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I, I think that there are many different private debt strategies. Distressed debt is only one of them. But in 2017 and 2019, it was probably accounting for about 35, 40% of the total raised for private debt. And those were big fundraising years for the asset class generally. So quite a big bet has been placed on distressed. And, you know, my guess is that not all that much of that capital has been invested so far. You know, you see some huge distressed investors. I mean, Apollo raises distressed funds pretty regularly. In fact, it, it's tended to blend its distressed equity and distressed debt approaches. So, you know, you have a portion of a fund that's uh, dedicated to distressed equity and then another portion that goes into distressed debt. But, you know, we saw Apollo raising a sort of 20 billion plus dollar fund. Oak Tree can get up to around $15 billion for its distressed funds these days. So individual funds can be very large and they mount up to a, a pretty substantial amount of capital available for distressed debt investment. You know, the big question is really where that capital goes. Right. And Kyle, how about for the real estate sector? So for real estate, it's not common for funds to be raised specifically with distress in the title. Uh, we have seen a little bit of that in the last year or so, but primarily this is something that's being pursued through opportunistic funds. And opportunistic funds have made up a larger share of the capital raised so far this year than in years past working at in sort of the 30-35% slice of the pie as opposed to sort of the low to mid-20s in the last few years. So we're definitely seeing an uptick in opportunistic fundraising. And we have seen a few individual cases of raising a lot of capital specifically in this pandemic period. We went back and looked at the funds that were opened with an opportunistic target and closed, uh, opened and closed all within 2020 last year. And there's about $11 billion raised there and several groups raising a billion dollars or more. So some of those are, you know, pure play sort of distressed opportunities. And actually I've spoken to a couple of those groups. Uh, some of them are more sort of garden variety opportunistic, sort of more of a, a development focus. But clearly the brunt of the distressed investment pool right now is going towards real estate debt. And uh, we, we have also seen a sort of an uptick in, in debt focused strategies, even from groups that are typically more active on the equity side. Okay. And so we also saw uh, these so-called dislocation funds being raised very quickly when the pandemic first broke out. What was the significance of that trend? Let's start with you this time, Kyle, and then Andy, you can kind of do cleanup as it were. 
Sure. Uh, so a big example of this was Kane Anderson. They raised $1.3 billion for dislocation all in a span of two weeks, which is pretty impressive. You really don't hear too many examples of that. Uh, they also, in addition to that, had a half billion dollar sidecar pool uh, to invest. From what I understand, all of that capital has been deployed, most of it sort of in the immediate aftermath of closing that fund last spring. Some of it has, I think that's about 60%, you know, a little less than half has been deployed this year. But I think the sort of difference between those two sets of deployments really illustrates what's going on in the space, because the initial thrust of that capital was used to buy up sort of CMBS that was made available as a result of margin calls on groups that you know, had distress elsewhere in their portfolio, and then other sort of loans that were you know, sort of performing well, but just the holders of those notes really needed liquidity. This year, sort of as, as we've gotten away from the initial impact of the pandemic, a lot of that uh, those funds have been deployed towards you know, more garden variety distressed, sort of situational rather than sort of systemic, I would say. So, and, and you know, the Kane example is one group that really raised a lot of capital and sort of deployed it that way, but there've been you know, many others that have sort of followed that same path. Yeah, I'd just add to that. I think the dislocation trend really emphasized how important timing is in distressed investing. So one thing that people used to tell me about the global financial crisis and distressed investing at that time was that there were funds that got in quick and quickly seized the opportunity. Some of those funds were making, you know, incredible returns. I mean, shooting the lights out on a returns basis. Whereas, you know, if you got the timing even slightly wrong, if you maybe just came in at the tail end of that particular crisis, then you may even struggle to get your initial outlay back. So timing is absolutely crucial. And I think that was demonstrated again with the pandemic. Um, so those funds that were raised very quickly and there were some, as I think as Carl pointed out, there were some funds that were raised incredibly quickly. Um, in the private debt space, KKR raised a fund very quickly indeed. And what it also emphasised was, you know, the trust that you need to have in, in certain managers because the investment mandate is going to be pretty flexible. I mean, dislocation covers an array of different approaches. For one thing, it tends to be, at least in the private debt domain, it tends to be public market investing as well as private markets. And, you know, you're probably not really telling investors very much about exactly what you're going to be investing in and how you're going to be investing. So a lot is taken on trust. You know, a lot of these funds, they went to their existing investor base. They wouldn't even have made any attempt to approach new investors just a case of gathering up the, the existing investor base and saying, look, guys, put, put your faith in us because we can see a great opportunity, but we need your money to be committed very, very quickly. And I think, uh, you know, again, you know, this is anecdotal, but again, I'm being told that some of those funds that were raised quickest in, in the early months of last year, uh, many of them did extremely well. As time went by, returns began to diminish as the opportunity set diminished. Okay, so definition time real quick, because I think this is a good point in the conversation for that. Something that, uh, Kyle, you mentioned about special situations, you know. So, Andy, if you could just, for listeners who might not be familiar, as familiar with distressed debt in that universe, could you define the difference between traditional distressed and special situations? Yeah, that's a tough question, actually. <laughs> I think different people will give different answers. People refer to so-called pure distress. And at that level, it's, it can almost be a kind of a trading type strategy, you know, trade in and out. There's an element of, 
a stronger element of liquidity to it than you would normally find in alternative assets. And often, you know, you're talking about pretty deep distress. Special situations, it covers a, a wider range of things, and it's maybe a little bit more operational in nature. So these are, with distressed, maybe you're trying, you're buying for virtually nothing, and, and you may not sell for that much more, but there's still a differential Special situations tends to have more of a sort of turnaround element to it. So you're looking at a, a business or a loan that's probably in better shape, you know, as a result of which you're sort of looking to nurture that business, nurture that loan back to good health. But, you know, on the other hand, I mean, the, the definition itself is controversial. I mean, some people that I talk to say that, uh, and this is, made, this is a cynical view of things, they, they would say that actually there's no real difference between distressed and special situations. The only difference is in the labelling. And when you're marketing a fund, you know, special situations just sounds a bit better than distressed and may encourage more investors into your fund. So, yeah, the definition can be a little fluid. And that's actually a really good point. Now you think about the reputational viewpoint, you know, of investing in, say, distress versus special situations. So that leads really nicely into sort of the next thing that we should talk about. Social is huge right now. How do distressed funds fit within ESG frameworks? You know, are aggressive distressed strategies now frowned upon by investors? And then just like taking that a little bit wider too, maybe Andy, what do investors like and not like about distressed? Yeah, I guess it brings us back to really aggressive, you know, that, that I mean, I, I use the word pure, but also, you know, there's an association with aggression at a certain end of the distressed spectrum. Distressed investors coming in, buying firms at sort of rock bottom prices, you know, it may be stripping certain assets out of that business and, and because there's there's crown jewels there that they, they want to get their hands on, but there's a lot of stuff that just gets stripped away. And it can be quite a quite an aggressive strategy, which in some ways I suppose doesn't really fit with the times. You know, there is in all alternative asset classes, there is, of course, these days, a much greater focus on ESG, and rightly so. I mean, private debt has arguably been a little bit behind the curve on some of this, which is not really the, the fault of the asset class. It, it used to be the sense that, you know, private debt was relatively passive, you know, it sat behind the equity, and it was equity's responsibility to really sit in the driving seat and, and help shape the business and its strategy going forward. And private debt was kind of more passive. I think the view on that has definitely changed. So ESG is much more in focus now and you have loans that are sort of linked or the interest that you pay on those loans is linked to achieving certain uh, ESG related landmarks. So yeah, th times have changed and that, that makes people and investors a little bit more wary of investing in certain distressed strategies that are perceived to be very aggressive. It's actually also got to the point where some businesses and, and sponsors actually have clauses inserted into uh, documentation saying that certain businesses or certain loans can't end up in the hands of certain types of distressed investors. So this is a real problem for those distressed investors, of course, because they need to deploy their capital. So the last thing they want is being excluded from certain types of situation. But we are seeing that happen to a certain extent. So if I could add something, there is an interesting dynamic in the real estate space because groups that are active on both the debt and equity side 
sell themselves to investors as being able to step up and take control and take ownership of assets if they do fall into distress. If there's an issue with the underlying operation, they can step up and become the owner. But there's a reputational risk, of course, because if you're looking to lend to groups and they sort of see you as the big bad wolf peering over their shoulder, licking, licking your chops, they're not going to want to borrow from you. So I think there's been a lot of reluctance from the part of groups that could have stepped up and, and been really aggressive and sort of taken the keys back from their borrowers. Uh, they've said, look, we, we have the liquidity, we have the support from you know, various government programs. We don't need to take this asset back, so we're not doing it. Right. Yeah, definitely. These are these are all considerations that are playing out now, you know, in real time. And you're seeing different decisions being made than might have been made even two, three years ago. Right. And so, Kyle, let's talk about real estate. How has distress played out in the real estate market? And, you know, which property types were impacted most severely by recent distress? Yeah. So, the sort of far and away biggest area of distress right now in real estate is on the hotel side. Of course, travel was shut down globally for a year, and you have groups who had underwritten occupancy rates of you know 80% or more going to completely zero. So there's there's been a lot of issues there. Retail is another place where sort of a, an exaggeration of ongoing trends of people I mean, there are there are a lot of mall properties throughout the U.S. in particular that had been struggling in recent years to attract people. Now it was literally impossible for them to come. Uh, Brookfield, one of the biggest mall owners in the world, had to at one point shut down its entire portfolio at once, which is you know has never been done before. So those are the areas where you're seeing a lot of distress and some movement, some sales, but. There's been a real reluctance on these groups to, to really, you know, owners of these distressed assets to, to really sell into the market just yet. And I think we might touch on that a bit later. Office has also been an area where there's been sort of soft distress, I would say, in that there's a thought that valuations have really taken a hit during this period, but it's unclear how much or sort of how long lasting that will be. Of course, most of us are working from home now, not going into offices there's been sort of widespread relocation in the U.S., and it just remains to be seen what, what the, the demand drivers will be for office and if that's going to have to result in some actual distressed sales. So, again, soft distress, there's there's issues there, but it's not actually coming to the fore. Really, it's just those areas that, were, that you would sort of think of as being first hit by the pandemic, uh, which is retail and, and hospitality. All right. So let's talk about uh, forbearance real quick here before we sort of wrap it up. You know, how significant a role has widespread forbearance played on distress in the real estate market? And, you know, when does the industry expect this to end? Well, that's the million dollar question. Um, Forbearance has been hugely influential through this sort of distressed cycle. You know, without regulators really pushing on uh, lenders, uh, you know, banks and you know, sort of non-bank lenders, they've been able to be really lenient and sort of work with their borrowers to keep everything afloat. And we've been having this conversation about when is this going to end for more than a year now. And it always seems to be uh, the answer is, oh, a few months away. And that's sort of where we stand now. It takes a little bit of a crystal ball to really say when this is going to happen on a large scale. I think you can kind of make some educated guesses in the sense that on the hospitality side, a lot of 
the viability of the assets that have had the most distress is going to be bared out during the summer travel months. And then after that, or sort of as that tapers down, you might see borrowers just saying, well, look, you know, we're having this bounce back in, in travel and, and, and hospitality use. You're still not coming close to where we need you to be. We're going to have to sell at a distressed price. Probably will see some of that in the next couple months. But as far as a pulling of the, the rug out from under people, we might never see it. You know, it might just be sort of a typical distress cycle where you know, it kind of builds up over time. Of course, in 2008, during that crisis, most of the, the distress did not actually bear out until a few years later. What is interesting is that unlike uh, 2008, where you sort of saw that two-year climb of steady distress in the CMBS market and sort of a leveling off for a little while and then sort of a sharp fall, you've already seen sort of a, a sharp, you know, sort of an A-shape of you know distress coming up very quickly and then coming down equally quickly. So we'll see how that continues out. Right. Okay. So what are the opportunities right now for distressed investors? Will more opportunity open up to support schemes uh, as schemes are wound down? You know, uh, Andy, maybe you can take the first round on this one. Sure. Yeah. So where's the opportunity now? I mean, it comes back to some of those sectors that, that Carl was talking about, you know, in the corporate world, it's clearly hospitality, it's, it's retail, it's travel, it's all those industries that have been worst affected. But the overall picture is that there's nowhere near as much of a distressed opportunity at this point as people were anticipating. And it's for precisely that reason that you've just mentioned, Chase, which is to say the, uh, the government support schemes which have provided an unprecedented level of liquidity, which you know, we've not seen in prior comparable, if, if, if there is a comparable crisis, comparable scale of crisis, the level of, of liquidity coming from governments has just not been seen before. And what it's done is, you know, it's certainly delayed the distressed, uh, what would have been the distressed opportunity. But, you know, that, that opportunity almost certainly will still be there. So, there's plenty of companies that have been over leveraged and, you know, the chickens will, will come home to roost. There's no question about that. But rather than seeing a wave of distressed opportunity in 2021, my bet is that we'll probably see it in 22 or 23. That's when the wave will finally hit the shore, in my view. I completely agree with uh, Andy's assessment there. There's not any indication of a, of a near-term wave of distress I think we're going to continue to see a lot of M&A activity, which has been really increasing the last few months. And we're going to see workouts in various other ways. And basically, it's going to be whatever's left over, whatever can't be worked out, whatever platforms other more stable groups don't want to absorb, whatever's sort of left hanging, that's going to be where the opportunities are going to be. Real estate wise, it's almost certainly going to be retail because there's a big secular reorganization of, of how we use retail and how much retail we think we need and how much retail we actually need. Hospitality, it's a question mark. It's always a cyclical business. So I don't necessarily think there's going to be any sort of widespread distress there. You might see some more acquisitions like Extended Stay America, which Blackstone recently acquired or is in the process of trying to acquire. It's actually, I mean, that's an interesting example in and of itself. Seems like a, a ripe distress opportunity, but of course, shareholders don't want to let it go for what they think think is not a sufficient price. So in a nutshell, we're going to start to see more activity when the would-be sellers really can't hold out any longer and, you know, have to sort of come to terms with, with how, how damaged their assets are. 
Right. Okay. So any final thoughts, Kyle, then Andy? Uh, just sort of sticking in line with what we've discussed, you know, th- this is very much uncharted territory on the distress side of things because there has been such great support from governments around the world. There are going to be ripple effects from that that, you know, we all know are coming but really can't predict what they're going to look like. So I think that's that's what we really have to sort of keep an eye on is sort of the unintended consequences of this period of great intervention. Yeah, I mean, one one final thought might be from the investor side, the thing that they're always worried about with distressed funds is how long that capital sits on the sidelines before being invested, because of course it's it's still taking fees. I think we you know one question I would pose is to what extent managers will feel the pressure to deploy the capital into an environment that isn't necessarily optimal, and will it force them into more difficult situations than they were. Uh, thinking they would need to get involved in. So, you know, for example, will it push them into junk bonds? Will it push them into smaller businesses? Will they end up going into those parts of the market that they probably wouldn't have gone into if the scale of the distressed opportunity had actually turned out to be what was originally envisaged? This has been Chase Column speaking with Andy Thompson from Private Debt Investor and Kyle Campbell from Perry. Thanks for listening.